For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so for new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zengate, and I'm very happy and honored to be introducing our guest speaker today, Zenshin Florence Kaplow. Florence has spoken at Ancient Dragon uh, numbers of times regularly, uh, but for new people, she is uh, a Zen priest and teacher, also a Unitarian minister, uh, a conservationist and botanist by profession, um, and also co-editor of a wonderful book called Hidden Lamp, a stories of uh, women teachers and practitioners going back, India, Tibet, China, Korea, Japan, with wonderful commentaries by modern Western, well, modern teachers, women teachers. And since uh, Florence last spoke at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, she has received Dharma transmission. So congratulations. Um, she's now an authorized teacher in Suzuki Roshi lineage, receiving transmission from Bruce Fortin and Sonoma. So uh, Zenshin, thank you for speaking again at Ancient Dragon. Thank you, Taigen. It's wonderful to be with you all again in uh virtually in your new zendo <laughs> uh or your new home for now all homes are temporary and originally i was really hoping that i would be with you in person uh but instead i'm at upaya zen center in new mexico and i'm not going to rub this in but it's sunnier here <laughs> than it is in illinois <laughs> Um, and it's a really, it's a really wonderful honor. Uh, I'm here for the most of the month of February as a visiting teacher. Um, the Roshi Joan Halifax is in Costa Rica. It's kind of a quiet time between practice periods, and it's a way that I can come and practice and be supportive of the residents here. There are about 18 residents, and it's it's just extraordinary for me after nearly three years of pandemic life. And as a person who is immune compromised, really, uh, that's very much continued for me to be in Sangha and to be, uh, they have a very strict COVID policy, a three-day quarantine before entering the community, which I did and uh, a little, my little guest house where I am now. And, uh, and now I'm practicing with everyone in the monastic schedule, this morning we did the full moon ceremony, which is just one of the most beautiful ceremonies in our whole tradition. I was so happy that I could participate in it. It's been a long time. And just being with these practitioners who are so sincere um, and practicing with their whole hearts and bodies, which we all are, whatever our circumstances. Just This is the form of practicing monastically. I'm very happy to be here. And again, I'm really happy to be speaking with you 
And uh, when Tigan asked me what I might want to talk about today, I said, well, how about courage? How about courage? So that's the theme of the talk today, courage in our practice. And I'll just tell a bunch of stories because that's how I roll. And a number of them are going to be from The Hidden Lamp. And then I'll be sure to leave some time so that I'm very interested to hear about your own relationship with fear and courage and um, how that relates to practice. So that's the plan for the talk. Uh, Right before I got here, I just happened across a YouTube video. It's It's been around for a while, I think a couple of years, but I hadn't encountered it. It's about six minutes long, and some of you maybe have seen it. It's a, a video that a runner made who was running in a fairly remote area, wilderness area in Utah in the fall, beautiful colors. And he probably had like a little GoPro camera uh, that he was wearing. And he's running along this lovely old road, kind of a Jeep trail down through a canyon. And the first thing he sees are some small animals gambling about in front of him. And uh, later he said he thought that they were maybe bobcat kittens because he'd seen bobcats in that canyon before. It was a place that he ran regularly. And then uh, the mother appeared and he realized that they were not bobcat kittens. They were, in fact, lion cubs. (laughs) They were mountain lion cubs. And the mother saw him. He was still fairly far away, but she came right at him. And for the next six minutes of this video, she is backing him up the road. She's pretty close. And as you may know, it's very important not to turn around and run in the presence of a predator. And he manages to keep his presence of mind enough that he does not turn around and run. So he is literally backing uphill up this fairly steep road with a mountain lion. Mm, I would say anywhere from 20 feet away from him, maybe 20 to 30 feet, and occasionally actually charging him with teeth bared, uh, hissing. You can hear her or making whatever. I I don't quite know how to describe the noise. Uh, Her her front paws kind of splayed out as she heads for him. And you can hear him. And (laughs) through this video, he is he's talking the whole time. He's talking to her and to himself. And there's a if you watch this video, there's a there's a fair amount of um, profanity, as you might imagine. I'm sure that would be happening to me as uh, if I were in his shoes. And he's mostly just trying to convince her to turn around at some at several times. He says, 
just go back to your babies. Just, I'm not going to hurt them. Just go away. And then sometimes he's saying, I think I'm going to die. These may be my last minutes because really these charges are, are quite terrifying. And, uh, and nothing he does seems to affect her determination to continue to follow him up this road. And it's a pretty long way. If you think about six minutes, I would say it's a quarter of a mile at least that she's following him. And I think as it goes on, he is more and more sure that he's going to die as a result of this encounter. And a couple of times he tries to bend down, probably to pick, there's some pretty large rocks in the road to try to pick up a rock. And that's when she charges him. And so he really can't, he can't bend down. And finally, he is able to uh, find a rock and he throws it at her and she turns around and runs and goes away. It's quite a video. Apparently, there's really almost nothing else like it. It's a very rare uh, occurrence that someone actually catches on video a female lion uh, following <laughs> in that way for that long. I was really mesmerized by this video. And then I went and watched a fairly long interview with the young man, the runner who experienced this. And he was being interviewed by someone who is part of a conservation organization. I think he's actually somebody who used to work as a biologist for the probably for Forest Service. Uh, and then uh, now is really involved with conservation work around mountain lions in the West. And it was a really interesting interview. Uh, he starts out asking him, because this video went viral, as you might have imagined, uh, how he how he felt about this lion after, or, and about lions in general, and about whether or not he was going to run in this canyon again after this experience. And what I was really struck by is that this experience had, he was going to run in that canyon again. And this experience had deepened his appreciation for these really magnificent animals and his desire to use his experience to be part of protecting these animals and their habitat. He was so deeply respectful. Uh, and this was this interview was only, I think, within certainly within a week of when he had had this encounter. So it was really a striking, the whole thing is a really uh, striking experience, uh, a direct experience of someone really in a terrifying situation and how they worked with that. And in his case, how his heart opened really as a result of this encounter. Uh, as a person who spent a lot of my life working in wilderness areas in the West, I've never had a direct encounter with a mountain lion, although I'm sure I've been seen by many, many, many. And in fact, Tygen will appreciate this. Uh, living at Green Gulch, there are lions in the hills around Green Gulch. And sometimes they come right down into Green Gulch. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of deer there. And attracted, of course, to the fields and everything else. And uh, there have been it definitely encounters between Zen students and lions in, in Green Gulch. 
So I was very aware when I was there, especially getting up very early in the morning to walk to Zazen in the dark, that I might be walking with a lion. And uh, I've certainly had my share of bear encounters. And the reason that I'm pretty sure that profanity would be uh, happening for me too, is that did happen uh, fairly without my um, conscious choice (laughs) uh, with bear encounters, including up in Alaska, uh, where I worked for a little while one summer and I had many, many bear encounters. In fact, I describe myself as being bear-annoyed I'm not fond of encountering bears in the field. I find it really frightening. But it was part of my life to be in what is their home. So you're probably wondering why I'm going on and on about this, but you'll see. (laughs) There's a connection to the Dharma here. (laughs) Because this reminds me of one of my favorite koans in the hymn lamp. And this koan involves Zhao Zhou, who's one of our great Uh, ancestors in China. There are many koans in the great uh, traditional koan collections that feature Zhao Zhou. He's also my longtime teacher, Norman Fisher. Uh, Zhao Zhou was really his favorite guy. So um, that's made me very fond of him as well. And they're in his own record of uh, stories from his uh, teaching life. There are many stories of Zhao Zhou's encounters with unnamed old women. I sometimes wonder if it was all the same unnamed old woman, but I don't know. Anyway, there were either many old women in the hills and mountains around Zhao Zhou's temple uh, or one really incredible old woman. Uh, We don't know. This is the story. One day when Master Zhao Zhou Kongshur was outside the monastery. He saw an old woman hoeing a field. He asked her, what would you do if you suddenly met a fierce tiger? She replied, nothing in this world frightens me and turned back to her hoeing. Zhao Zhou roared like a tiger. And I have not been in tiger habitat, but my understanding is that a tiger's roar is like nothing else in this world. It is extraordinarily loud. You can hear it for miles. So I'm imagining this teacher who is also in many ways a tiger. Uh, I, I think when so you, many, maybe you've had that experience when you've been in Dokusa with a teacher. Sometimes it can feel like you've encountered a tiger. So he roars and she roared back at him. And Zhao Zhou said, there's still this. That's the story. Nothing in this world frightens me. What an incredible thing to say. Could any of us say this? I couldn't say this. (laughs) What had she been through in her life and in her practice life? Because clearly this is a practitioner. For this to be true, what had she realized? This is a real question. I know you chant the Heart Sutra, as do Zen people all over the world. And I know that when I first encountered the Heart Sutra, one of the things that really interested me was a particular line 
and there are there are uh, different translations of this line. Uh, I think the one that you chant is uh, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. Uh, and here is some, um, and I'll just mention that the Heart Sutra, the, uh, you may know this, but that there is actually a connection between the heart and courage because uh, the word courage, kur, comes from the Latin kur, heart. So heart and courage go together. So here are some other, other versions. This is what is chanted at Upaya. Without hindrance, the mind has no fear. From the great translator Red Pine, without walls of the mind, and thus without fears. Without walls of the mind. From our our wonderful teacher Shohaku, without any hindrance, no fears exist. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, having no obstacles, they overcome fear. You could do a whole series of Dharma talks on all those different translations. They're very interesting. You know, are we overcoming fear? Do fears even exist? Are there walls in the mind? And what does it mean when there are no more walls? Anyway, I think that this has something to do with this old woman's statement that nothing in this world frightens me. And then there's these roars. I don't know. I don't know if Tygen does send shouts. Oh, he does. I see a nod happening. Uh, These are traditional uh, within Zen. And... Uh, This is definitely what's going on here is a Zen shout for sure. Um, It's pretty rare, I think, uh, in that world, our world, for a a woman to be shouting, for a non-teacher to be shouting. And I love that she just roars right back at him. And if you've ever experienced a Zen shout, especially if you're not expecting it, it absolutely stops you. It just stops the mind. There's just all there is, is this shocking sound. And it's really beyond language. And uh, as much as we use language in Zen, we also understand that some things are, are beyond language. And the roar of a tiger, I think, is one of those places beyond language. And yet, uh, I'm also very interested in the kind of final turn of this story, where he says, after they both roar at each other, <laughs> there is still this. Oh, you know, what, what, does, what does this there is still this mean? So this is just my, this is my sense. As of today, one of the things I say in my own way of working with koans is that they are mirrors for our life and practice. And so what may be true for you on one day uh, may, may shift. But for right now, what comes up for me is that even in that place 
where the walls of the mind uh, are gone and there are no fears, there is still response. There is still relationship. And uh, Jaojo and this old woman outside the walls of the monastery enact this relationship with one another. And, uh, and if she met a tiger, that would be another kind of relationship that would be enacted with or without fear. And we really value relationship. We really value meeting in our tradition. And this is a really beautiful meeting between two human beings, two very uh, woken up human beings. Tigan mentioned that all the stories in the book have reflections. We were very intentional in calling them reflections rather than commentaries, partly because we really wanted the reflections to be just one person's reflection so that you could also turn the koan in your own life. And so this is a reflection by a Korean Zen nun, Chikwan Sunim. And it was interesting for me to hear that this koan was one she encountered in her own tradition many years before. This is not one that I knew before compiling the book, but in her tradition, this is, this is one that they work with. And I just thought I'd read a little bit of what she wrote and a little verse that she ends her reflection with. This magnificent, joyous moment in life, or this fearful thing bringing us grief, don't smother reality or thisness with such impressions. No. Is this magnificent or is this fearful? What is this tiger in my life or this fearless old woman in me? What is that great timeless inner roar of no sound? And where does it come from? Such inquiry points to a deep, spacious stillness within, yet demands we act now. Only through the cultivation of this within Zen action may Zhaozhou's last words be grasped. And then she has this little verse. Compared to a non-virtuous human heart, the tiger is very kind. But to speak one word or even create a single dharma, you're devoured. Those are her last words on the story. Of course, really, you can't talk about courage without talking about fear. Really, without fear, there is nothing to be courageous about. You could say, in fact, that this old woman was not courageous because nothing in this world frightened her. But for most of us, courage and fear are connected. And of course, without courage, fear just stops us in our tracks, contracts us, and uh, keeps us from moving forward. I've also had that experience in the woods quite directly. And the Buddha himself taught about fear and fearlessness and courage. And I, I wanted to share something about a mudra uh, that I'm sure you've seen in many Buddhist statues, primarily in um, standing statues, 
throughout Asia. And it's this gesture. So the open hand, the right hand uh, facing forward. And this is the mudra of fearlessness. The abhaya mudra in Sanskrit. And it symbolizes the dispelling of fear. I want you just for a second to try it yourself. Go ahead and just put your hand up and feel what that feels like in your body to offer the mudra of dispelling fear to yourself, to others. So this very ancient hand gesture is also, of course, in many cultures, a sign of peace or friendship because uh, we tend, most of us, to be right-handed, which is also the hand that can hold a weapon. And this gesture indicates that you are free of weapons and that you come in peace. It is said that the historical Buddha made this hand gesture immediately after gaining enlightenment or shortly after gaining enlightenment. And we're going to return now to uh, scary animals, another scary animal story. (laughs) So this is a story from the, the Buddha. Later, a group of people who were trying to stop the Buddha and his teachings fed alcohol and and tortured an elephant uh, in order to use that elephant as a weapon against the Buddha. So he was charged by this mad elephant who was enraged and in pain. All his followers ran away, but the Buddha stood calmly, raising his hand in that gesture of fearlessness. He felt great love and compassion for the elephant. In response, the elephant stopped its charge, became calm, and then approached the Buddha and bowed his head. The Metta Sutta, which is now chanted, it's not really a traditional Zen chant, it's actually a Pali chant from the time of the Buddha, is chanted in Zen centers really kind of everywhere now. I think we can, we in the West have really come to appreciate that this has important teachings for us and softens our heart. Um, it's this the Loving Kindness Sutra. And the in the in the suttas from the time of the Buddha, it's obvious that the Metta Sutta was uh, an offering that the Buddha made to his monks and nuns who at that time were practicing in the jungle. There there were no monasteries. In fact, even in Chinese, the word for forest and the word for monastery are the same because the forest was the original monastery. And both monks and nuns early on practiced alone in the forest. They might gather together in the morning and go on alms round. And then they each went and found a different place under a tree somewhere. And and this isn't a a nice 
forest, like a park somewhere with rangers, forest rangers. <laughs> this is the jungle of India. And there really are many, many animals in the jungles of India, especially at that time, that could end your life. Poisonous snakes, poisonous insects, uh, tigers, elephants, and really an untold number of dangers. And so you can imagine how scary this was to practice in that environment. And the Buddha gave the, the metta sutta actually to someone who was afraid of being attacked by a tiger. And there's another version of the metta sutta that I learned years ago in a Theravadan retreat. And this particular retreat, I was camping in the woods uh, in Washington state. And so sometimes at night, I heard some really surprising noises. I think, I think they were mostly elk moving through, but I'm not sure. And so sometimes I was scared in my tent. And I really appreciated learning this other version of the Metta Sutta, where you actually offer loving kindness. You start with like all beings with many legs. May all beings with many legs be free of suffering, be at ease, be happy. May all beings with eight legs, may all beings with six legs, may all beings with four legs. You go through this whole process, all these different numbers of legs. May all the beings with two legs, like us, may all beings with no legs, like snakes. And uh, you, um, you, just make sure that you are including pretty much everything, which we see in the Metta Sutta, true, right? Visible and invisible, invisible, near or far, born or to be born. Uh, and this is the same idea. But again, this was offered to somebody who was really scared out in the, out in the jungle. Just because you were a disciple of the Buddha doesn't mean that you weren't scared out there. And it's, a real, it's really an intense practice, if you think about it. Uh, imagine if we were doing that kind of practice. Maybe some of you know about, uh, there's a retreat center in the mountains of Colorado run by David Loy and several other people who are within a similar tradition that is, it's called the Ecodharma Center. And they do outdoor uh, sashins, outdoor retreats in the mountains. And there's a little Zen tradition of this too, uh, mountains and rivers, sushins, they're called, I think mostly done uh, on the West Coast in California, I know, and also in Washington State, where as a group, you go out and uh, hike and, and you're in silence like a sushin, but you're, you're out in the mountains, uh, powerful practice. And of course, since I'm at Upaya, which is in the tradition of the um, Peacemaker Order and Bernie Glassman, who did street retreats on the streets of New York and also on the tracks of Auschwitz and uh, many other, and in Cambodia after the, on the killing fields, this practice of bearing witness, which is also a practice of tremendous courage. So this is part of our, like, uh, what's the word? Lineage. This is this these practices of courage of of facing our fears of sitting in the fire of our fear. Uh, this is 
This is what has been happening for Dharma practitioners for more than 2,000 years. And many of the stories in The Hidden Lamp are about courage. And as I was preparing this talk, I realized that maybe this was part of why I was so drawn to them. I was certainly uh, in need myself of stories about women and women's practice as a woman in a woman's body. But I think that as I began collecting these stories, it was personally really important to me to see the courage, or in some cases, fearlessness, since those might be different things, um, expressed in so many of the stories. It takes courage, um, I think. It took courage in Confucian China, in many parts of the world where women are, even to this day, um, not necessarily seen as even as fully human as a man to engage in this practice. And I'll just say, um, I think, too, when you are trying to enter a uh, tradition that is dominated by people who do not look like you, this also takes courage. And I want to recognize uh, those who come from different backgrounds, uh, from different racial backgrounds, and the courage it takes to enter the very white spaces of uh, a lot of Western Buddhism. Uh, and that, so this is not something from 2000 years ago or ancient China. This is right here and now in our own sanghas. Sometimes the courage in these stories are very obvious. One of them uh, is about Ryonin, uh, who was a, a Japanese woman uh, who was told that uh, she couldn't practice in a training temple. Uh, she was told this by the teacher with the monks because her beauty would distract them from their practice. So she took up a hot iron and she scarred her face. And then she went back to that teacher and she said, now can I practice with the monks? And he was, she was immediately admitted. I would like to believe, not knowing, but I would like to believe that that teacher admitted her not because she was no longer beautiful and a distraction to the monks, but because she, he saw, he really saw her uh, immense heart of practice and of courage. Um, so her almost uh, warrior-like practice. Taigen uh, pointed out some words from uh, Dogen on courage for me. Uh, and this is from, it's, a, it's called The Courage of Patch-Robed Monks. I would say all practitioners, we are patch-robed monks. And it's from the Ehe Koroku. Uh, it's Dharma Hall Discourse number 239. And uh, I'll just read a little part of it. Entering the water without avoiding deep sea dragons is the courage of a fisherman. Traveling the earth without avoiding tigers 
is the courage of a hunter. Facing the drawn sword before you and seeing death as just like life is the courage of a general. What is the courage of patch-robed monks? I'm going to let you sit with that for just a moment. What is the courage of patch-robed monks? Maybe there's something that arises in your own heart. What is your courage? After a pause, I think Dogen was also inviting his monks to consider this. I just have to say, as I'm speaking, I'm hearing the sound of the bell at uh, Upaya. <laughs> Dogen said, Spread out your bedding and sleep. Set out your bowls and eat rice. Exhale through your nostrils. Radiate light from your eyes. That was his answer on that day, or part of his answer. If you have ever sat a sashin or a meditation retreat or even a single period of zazen, you know these words are true. It takes courage to meet our suffering. Sometimes even more courage than it might take to meet a lion or a crazed elephant. And although I didn't notice this initially when I read this passage, now I'm really struck uh, by what these words that are repeated through the whole passage, which is without avoiding, without avoiding deep sea dragons, without avoiding tigers, seeing death just as like life, but this without avoiding. I mean, really, we spend our life avoiding suffering. We spend our life trying to uh, make things comfortable, (laughs) that just a little bit less suffering. And when we sit You can actually, there are ways you can use sitting to avoid suffering, but it has a way of uh, being no longer avoided. This can be uh, tremendously shocking, actually, and, and even destabilizing. And yet, that's our practice. That's our courage. The kind of ordinary activities, in the ordinary activities of life, to not avoid to not turn away, to bear witness to our own suffering. Maybe all these animals in these old stories are, maybe they're real animals, but maybe they're also metaphors for what we meet in our own minds and hearts, for the wild animals we encounter. Maybe unexpectedly, backing us up the road for a quarter mile, protecting her kittens. For me personally, I really think that my search for a more courageous heart was what led me to practice. I did a lot of reading as a young person on on what people went through during the Holocaust, on what was happening in South Africa as I was growing up. 
the activists in South Africa who would face torture and imprisonment and sometimes death uh, in order to change the system of apartheid. The people in Chile and Argentina, um, all over the world that did these things that just seemed to me both absolutely right in the face of profound injustice and authoritarianism and also absolutely terrifying. And I just thought, I don't know if I could be one of those people. I, I'd want to be one of those people, but I don't know if I could be one of those people. Would I be willing to speak the truth and find myself in a prison or worse? This was a real question for me. This was a, this was a koan. This was my koan. And that, because I was pretty fearful, honestly. And that was really what brought me to practice. Would practice, would this practice uh, help me to become the person that I wanted to be? So that maybe I was still frightened, but I would be able to act. As we saw, there is still this. Because the world really needs this, right? The world needs people who are courageous, who are willing like the drawn sword in the general, to see death just as like life and to act. I saw this at Standing Rock when I was there. I saw the thousands of people who were there, uh, many of them young people, young Native people who had already experienced, many of them, suffering that uh, goes back generations and that deeply affects the lives of Native people everywhere. And there they were at Standing Rock. They dropped everything to be there and to protect the great waters of the Missouri River, to protect their relatives at at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, putting down differences that had been in existence for hundreds of years in order to uh, face water cannons on freezing nights in order to face uh, extreme militarization uh, where people were hospitalized as a result of injuries. And there they were doing this practice, uh, undoubtedly afraid and yet willing to put their lives there. Some of you may have been following. I know that Tigan sent out some news reports on um, an activist in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, who died on January 18th as a result of police violence. Um, His name, he was um, a Venezuelan. His name was Manuel Esteban Paez Terran. Um, He went by Tortuguito, which was the name of a Native American leader who... uh, um, stood firm against the U.S. Army. And they were trying to, he and many other people were trying to protect this forest in, in the outskirts of Atlanta and stop the development of an absolutely massive police training center there. And I was not aware of this, but the shooting, now I, I have some issues with this, but this is what the news says, is one of the first documented cases of environmental activists being killed by law enforcement in American history. However, I would argue that the many, many indigenous peoples killed by law enforcement and by the U.S. Army 
in American history were in fact also trying to protect the land. So, um, but um, I, uh, one of the things that Tigan sent out was a, was a quote. Oh goodness. I might've lost it. Let me see if I've got it. Oh, I, I lost the quote from him. Oh, here it is. Nope. I've got it. So there was a reporter that spent some time with him, not knowing that he would be killed and did a long interview with many of the people who were there. But this, this quote really stood out for me. Um, he very much identified as a nonviolent uh, activist. And he said, I am scared, but you can't let the fear stop you from doing things, from living, from existing, from resisting. I am scared, but you can't let the fear stop you from doing things, from living, from existing, from resisting. So I thank Tortuguito, little tortoise, for these words of wisdom for us now and for your life, your short life. He was 26 years old when he died um, and your commitment to protecting this earth and the peoples of the earth. So this question of courage and fearlessness, it's not, it's not just on the cushion. Nothing that, of course, nothing is just on the cushion, but it's not, it's not academic. It's not, I don't know quite how to say this, but this really matters. We're living in um, times that are requiring us to show up in ways that really may take us to the very edge of what we know uh, is possible for us. And our practice, I felt this in my own life, this practice of really bearing witness to our own suffering, to our own fear, to sitting like a mountain in the middle of that fear uh, is in fact extraordinary training for action for for meeting this world in whatever way we are called to do this. There's another story from the book, a, a, a little story by uh, about Deepa Ma, who is a, a very interesting uh, Indian um, woman teacher of the 20th century uh, who had grown up really in extreme poverty. I think she married when she was 14. Um, and became a really considered an, a kind of enlightened, wise person. And she was brought to uh, out of, she lived in Calcutta, um, and she was brought to America um, quite late in life. Uh, she was a lay person, she never ordained. And so in the last few years of her life, she had Western students and she traveled around the world and there's this story that she was on an airplane with a woman student and there was tremendous turbulence. And she was sitting across the aisle from this student. And um, at one of those kind of, you know, big drops that happened on the plane, the student screamed and she reached out her hand. And it's funny, I, I, I took my right hand, kind of that mudra of fearlessness, right? Maybe this is another form of this mudra. She reached out her hand and she took the hand of her student. And she said, the daughters of Buddha 
are fearless. And I've never thought that that was meant to negate the response of that student at that moment, but it was a reminder of our deep inner connection to fearlessness. And I want to I want to um, end with one last koan about fear and courage. This one from 18th century Japan. So Jojo back in the eighth century, eighth uh, and ninth century, had all these encounters with women. And we have another teacher in 18th century Japan, a thousand years later, who also seemed to have this tremendous, not seemed to, clearly did have this tremendous respect for lay women practitioners. And this was Hakuin, the very scary (laughs) Rinzai uh, teacher who really, really brought uh, the, the form of Rinzai that's now practiced in Japan and around the world really, in some ways, uh, goes back to Hakuin, who really revived uh, Rinzai teaching in, in Japan. And he was pretty ferocious, all the stories about him with his monks. It, it, he, would have been a, he would have been a tiger in the, in the interview room, for sure. But he also had this side where he, he had grown up in a little village called Hara. And that's where his monastery was. And he had all these encounters with villagers uh, which I now realize probably many of them were his relatives, actually. Uh, I don't know if it was really a tiny village, like, let's say a town in Japan. And many of them were women. Uh, and in these encounters, you see uh, meetings between Tara, I mean, between um, Hakuin and these women that really show that he could see their awakened heart and mind. And so I have a, a, a huge appreciation for Hakuin as well. So this is a pretty incredible story. Um, this is from uh, his own records, his own writings about a woman disciple who was a courtesan. There are different versions of the story. Like even the version that's in the book is be a little different than the one I tell you. I, if I could go back, I would change it a bit. And it's not clear because it varies across the versions whether Hakuin met her before or after she was serving in a brothel. This one, which was translated by Norman Waddell, who's translated a lot of Hakuin's writings, certainly suggests that um, Ohashi, so the name of this woman, was indeed studying Zen with Hakuin and had an awakening experience while still a courtesan. This is the story. Ohashi indentured herself to a Hara brothel. Hara is the town where Hakuin practiced to support her family when her samurai father lost his position on the death of his lord over the objections of her family. And although apparently she was uh, highly trained in many of the arts of uh, you know, that were practiced by uh, women in the brothels, but, you know, not just sexual arts, but also um, 
poetry and music. And she was also um, deeply sad, grieving the loss of her family and the life that she was living. She studied Zen with Hakuin, who advised her to contemplate life as the ultimate koan, that enlightenment was possible in any circumstance, including her own circumstance. Although terrified by thunder, one day Ohashi made herself sit on the veranda during a violent storm. A bolt of lightning hit the ground in front of her, knocking her unconscious. When she came to, she felt as if the universe was hers. That is the direct translation. She felt as if the universe was hers. Hakuin recognized her awakening. Ohashi was eventually redeemed by a rich patron whom she wed. Later, with her husband's permission, said that she went together to Hakuin, she ordained as a nun and became renowned for her wisdom and compassion. On her death, instead of making the customary memorial tablet, her husband and friends had Ohashi carved as Kanon, the goddess of compassion. This is when we chant the Enmei Jiku Kanon Gyo. We're chanting to Kwan Yin within us, Kanon. And had this image placed within Hakuin's temple. So later, when we finished with questions and all that, we do our service in honor of Ohashi's courage and compassion, courage and compassion that is our birthright as practitioners, and the courage and compassion in each of us, we will chant the Enmei Jiku Kanon Kyo. Thank you so much. And also, just to say, um, I'm, you could ask questions, but I'm also, I'm also interested in your, you know, what came up for you around what is the courage that it takes in your life to practice? So. Um, when you said that, I was very much moved and I thought, yes, what is the courage of a patch road monk? And I'm thinking about it. I think for, for me anyway, and I think for all of us in one way or another, is to be invisible. Hey, this is Dylan. Um, I think for me, the courage is being willing to fail, like knowing doing something that you care about and being okay with it not working out or, whatever, or not working out the way you thought it was going to. And of course, we've got a lot. You could do a whole other Zen talk on failure. So many great Zen stories <laughs> about that. So thank you. Whatever it is that failure means. Right. I uh, wanted to say I appreciate your talk, and for me, I think especially during this pandemic, when I have become more aware of patterns in my life that have gotten in the way. Could you just speak up a little bit so so we can hear online? Let me take this off for one second. So, um, for me, a fear is 
has to do with patterns that I have become aware of in my life that interfere with my life, become more aware of those during the pandemic when I had more my time. And I think the fear is that they're still there and they own me. I think you said that being aware of habits in your life and and how they how they affect you and that that, that in fact um, they're still there, I think you said. Uh, how they how they remain even as we're aware of them, right, right. Habits and patterns that are that interfere with a direction we want to go. Right, patterns that interfere. Yeah, yeah. Our conditioning. I mean, this is a huge part of what we encounter when we sit down in silence. Is our conditioning uh, that you know. We chant, right? All my ancient twisted karma, all the ways that that we are conditioned, have been conditioned by our culture, by our own mind, by our own actions over over a long period of time. And it, that that willingness to face it, to know it, to name it, to untangle it, to um you know, know that it's there, feel it, feel its presence, but not be caught by it. It's a huge part of our practice. And I, I agree that takes, that takes a lot of courage and humility, a lot of humility when it comes up for the umpteenth time, you're like, you know, it's like the stories of Buddha and Mara. Uh, I just heard a talk the other day here um, by Ame, who I, Ami, who I bet, you know, Tigan, um, about, uh, Buddha and Mara, and I, I, I was very aware of this, but you know, Mara, of course, is, plays a big role, the Lord of Illusion, and the Buddha's Night of Enlightenment. But here's the thing, Mara continues to appear throughout the rest of the Buddha's life. So here's this guy, right? He is our ultimate exemplar of enlightenment, and delusion keeps showing up. <laughs> And at least in some of the suttas, he actually refers to Mara as friend. Oh, friend, here you are again. So that should give us a little sense that like, okay, it's okay if for the umpteenth time, you know, the desire for cookies has arisen. Oh, friend, here you are again. Anyone else on courage? Maybe it takes courage to figure out what direction you want to go, as opposed to the directions that other people want you to go in. I'll just repeat that, uh, you know, for everybody online. I think what you said was it takes courage to know to to know and go in the direction that you need or want to go, rather than the direction that others think you should go. Um, you know, there's a story, it's not a, you don't hear this often, but it's part of the kind of little collection of stories about the Buddha's enlightenment time where he, he, after he was, he's given the rice milk by the young woman, notice there's a woman in that story. Um, he puts his bowl in the river and he says, if this bowl floats upstream, I know that my quest will be successful. And of course it does, because that's what happens in the in the stories. 
but I've always thought that's an incredible metaphor for like what it means to do the practice that we're doing, that in some ways it is profoundly countercultural. And there are lots and lots and lots of pressures on us to go in the direction that is more, and, and that could take any form. I'm not making any assumptions about, you know, what the direction might be, but, um, you know, to, to uh, go in the direction that you're called as opposed to the direction that you're, um, everybody around you thinks you should go in. May I say something? Please. Um, of all, this talk was really amazing. And it aroused so many different aspects of courage uh, when you were speaking. And um, most of them are just too profound to go into. And so I kind of want to talk about the least important of the examples of courage that maybe it's not the least important, but it's the one I feel I could, I could say something about. And, and this is what's happening politically to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar uh, because they are facing such pressure to not be where they are and not be themselves and not do what they're doing. And I read an article just yesterday about what would happen if people like that actually took power and the first thing they have to do is purge their enemies. Uh, I, I read this article yesterday and I thought, well, then they won't, then they won't be what they are. And those of us who feel politics deeply know that if we take the same path as our enemies by purging our enemies, then we no longer are what we say we are or what we are trying to be. And I think uh, this facing this pathway of peace and getting to the people from underneath and teaching and having patience with the time it takes and the very, very ambiguous results that we probably can never realize in, in our lifetimes or maybe ever. Uh, uh, it's extremely frustrating and very, you know, you want to go and say, well, get rid of this guy and get rid of that guy and then we'll be okay. Or get rid of, uh, you know, it's a very ad hominem to say it's because of him or because of her or because of uh, the former president or because of this. And, and if we could just get rid of them. Anyway, uh, I don't think this pathway in politics 
would promote the things that we are trying to say. That's it. I had so many responses that I couldn't even begin to start to tell me what they are. Well, thank you. And, you know, um, I think you bring, you know, one of the things that anyone who does reading about nonviolence, you know, whether you read um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or, you know, Gandhi or any of the great teachers of nonviolence make it very clear that this practice of nonviolence, which includes kind of non-duality, right, not making enemies, is in fact a, a practice of immense courage, immense and also uh, profoundly countercultural, because what we do as humans is make enemies of each other. And so, um, yes, <laughs> I'll just say that. Yes, and thank you. I'm glad to hear that the talk uh, touched you. And I, I, by the way, I do notice there's someone who's had their hand up a long time um, online. So, Bryant. Thank you. Um, very excellent talk. I want to thank you for weaving in so many threads from different areas of the Dharma into a, a grand tapestry about courage. Uh, um, very well done and made me think of a, of a few things. Uh, just a couple. Um, the hand mudra. Um, I love seeing connections to things. So Uchiyama Roshi. Uh, the title of one of his books is opening the hand of thought. Uh, and that affected me deeply when I, when I encountered that phrase as a great metaphor for kind of the prescription of the Dharma as a whole, which is waking up to the reality that our minds are creating in any one moment. And fear, um, essentially is a mind creation. It's, it's an evolutionarily adaptive one, you know, certainly, you want to run away from the saber-toothed tiger, but I think our minds overfunction in every moment of our lives where the reality for us in each moment of our lives is maybe 90, I don't know what percentage of anticipation, uh, presumptions, projections, everything, you know, we're predicting the future constantly. Uh, and how often are our predictions accurate? And so uh, I think one take on courage or in the, as in the heart sutra, the, the aligning of courage with emptiness, you know, is to realize the emptiness of our perceptions and our projections and our conceptions that they aren't these solid things that are definitely going to happen in the future. You know, the guy on the trail was sure that his life was going to end but then in the next moment, he was able to pick up a rock and she, the lioness ran away. Um, so a lot of times I think, I think to the, the four Bodhisattva vows, the second one, delusions are endless. You know, delusions are what our minds are constantly creating about the future. So if we can cut through those delusions with just the, the remembering that uh, our conceptual constructions are empty of solidly existing and just wait for the next moment, then we are kind of left with just this. 
and all we, you know, I, I, and I love coming back to Tigan's uh, book that emphasizes that um, teaching story about just this is it, you know, cut through all the other stuff your mind is creating right now. What what's right in front of you, and all you have to deal with is that. So, thanks very much. Thank you. You know, I, I've just had this. I just had a sort of Zoom revelation. So I noticed that when I came back to the larger group, my little my little hand was up because Zoom has started doing this thing where if you raise your hand on your screen, it will go up as a virtual hand. And I thought, well, maybe um, maybe every time we see a virtual hand in a Zoom meeting we're in, we can remember the mudra of fearlessness because that's what it is. You know, there it is right on the screen. How cool is that? Um, a, a Dharma reminder. Um, and I also wanted to say thank you for your comments there. Um, I, I didn't tell one part of the story about the guy and the mountain lion, which is that um, a lot of biologists have looked at the footage. And again, it's very rare footage, so great opportunity for them. And they are unanimous. They were unanimous that um, it was it was actually very unlikely that she was going to eat him <laughs> um, because mountain lions, uh, like all most predators um, hunt by stealth. So she would have been invisible to him behind him until he was um, pounced upon. That's how, if she was interested in, in actually killing him, she would have done it because they don't want to encounter, you know, our, our claws and teeth, uh, you know, which is why you don't turn around. Um, That in fact, all she was doing was, uh, rather nonviolently, um, getting him away from her babies. But he didn't know that at the time. And so it, she was pretty scary. Uh, and that was the intention was to be scary, but she wasn't, she was very unlikely to kill him. So great example that, yeah, absolutely. Our minds make up these stories about what's true, which may or may not have anything to do with what is actually happening. So yeah, thanks for that. It was great. Thank, thank you, Zenshin. Uh, this has been wonderful and wonderful comments. Uh, we're almost at time, but I saw that Nicholas's hand was up. Nicholas, did you have something? Uh, yeah, just briefly. Thanks for the wonderful talk. Um, yeah, just in line with what you just said, you know, the, the courage to um, really accept that um, my thoughts don't really mean anything. You know, my stories aren't true. And and basically, for me, it's uh, been about the courage to make friends with uh, not only my pain, but the pain, and be willing to bear witness to that. Thank you. That's a good summing up. Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs>